All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Let's jump right into today's show with my first guest, BC Premier John Horgan. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Premier, thank you for coming on once again. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. Let's start with the story that shocked the country this week. We've covered it every day here, and that's the discovery of the buried bodies of Indigenous children in Kamloops. You expressed your your sadness and the urgency to respond in a speech in the legislature this week. What is next here? What should be the next steps, in your opinion? Well, there are cultural protocols in place uh, in Indigenous communities across Canada. They're different in, in each part of the country, in each part of the province, for that matter. I, I've spoken with uh, Chief Kashmir in, uh, in uh, to Kemloops. Uh, she res- wants us to respect those protocols. And uh, I said, as uh, my minister has, and uh, the prime minister as well, that we stand ready uh, to take direction from uh, the community on how we proceed from here. But it's important, I think, for, for listeners to know that a lot of work had been done to get to this point uh, through the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and there were 94 calls to action. Those, those calls have not been fully implemented. And when I spoke yeah. to the Prime Minister this week, uh, both he and I recommitted to uh, make sure that those areas of our responsibility were higher priorities. Obviously, the pandemic's knocked everyone sideways on a whole bunch of issues, but uh, events in Kamloops have brought home graphically. And I think uh, in, for the non-Indigenous population in a positive way to fully understand the consequences of this point in our history, it, it, it did happen in the past, but we're living with it today. Survivors, their, right. chi- their children, their grandchildren. Uh, and uh, I, I believe that uh, all Canadians recognize now more than ever how important it is to uh, deal head on with reconciliation here in bc and right across the country there's been a lot of reaction to this uh, shocking story including calls for accountability calls for the release of documents and records premier let me play a clip here for you of the federal indigenous services minister mark miller here uh calling on pope francis and the catholic church to apologize here here's the federal minister spent long enough in a catholic institution to have a view on things so um i i i think it is shameful that they haven't done it that it hasn't been done to date. Okay, I think quite notably, it was interesting to see the Archbishop of Vancouver and Victoria both issue statements of apology uh, this week, but still nothing from the Pope. What, what are your thoughts as Premier on this and this a story that's happened here in British Columbia? Should the Pope apologize here, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm a United Church member myself, and the United Church has, has done the appropriate thing and apologized for any role that they would have played in the, in the residential school programs. And I, I just believe there needs to be an acknowledgement that uh, this was uh, terribly, terribly wrong, uh, bordering on genocide, as has been said by Indigenous leaders. And to, to pretend that this was not a profound moment of misjudgment and, and abuse uh, and tragedy, uh, I believe, does a disservice to uh, the Catholic Church, in my opinion. But that's uh, for them to figure out. I, uh, I, I know that uh, that there needs to be accountability. And that was what the TRC was all about. Uh, and that was what uh, I thought governments were going to be advancing. When we f- formed government, Mike, you'll remember, every minister in my government has a, a requirement to fulfill those, uh, those calls to action. And uh, that... Uh, that should be done across the country, and the federal government needs to up its game. The prime minister acknowledged that this week, and I think Minister Miller is doing that as well. Okay, we continue to follow this story very closely. Yeah. Let's uh, yeah. shift shift gears and talk about a story that's closer to your, right in your own riding, actually, and that's the the continuing logging dispute there in the in the Ferry Creek area. We've seen uh, well over 130 arrests, more arrests yesterday. 
uh, with activists trying to block logging roads and stop old growth logging in that in that territory. This is happening right in your backyard in your riding premier. What about the old growth logging that is happening in that territory? Should that be shut down? This is what the activists want. Yeah, and I appreciate their passion for these issues. I I was born and raised uh, on the island. Uh, I know the territory very well, not just as the elected representative, but that is an area where I uh, grew up, uh, uh, enjoying the spectacular uh, ancient groves uh, still to this day with my family. Uh, so I appreciate the passion, but I also, uh, again, going back to uh, the TRC and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, we, we passed the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples based on case law going back uh, decades here in Canada so that we could allow uh, and, and move to a place where rights and title holders made decisions in their territory. And that's what uh, right. the first recommendation in the report that we commissioned, an independent report, was to ensure that when we defer logging in areas that are in uh, Indigenous territories, uh, that we consult first. And that's been going on, and I know that people would like to see that happen faster, uh, but I, I believe that that would be disrespectful to the peoples whose territory uh, these forests reside and who have been the stewards of these lands for thousands of years. So uh, I appreciate the passion, Mike. Uh, I have it as well. But we have to go through this in a methodical way uh, to make sure that uh, everybody who's engaged on these issues uh, has an opportunity to have your, a say, not just the loudest voice. Your government has endorsed UNDRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Do you think if your government went in, in there into Ferry Creek and ordered a halt to that logging, which is supported by the Pachidot First Nation there, that that would be a contravention of that UN Declaration? Well, I, I do, and, and I yeah. think it's also not for you or I to speak for the Pachidats or the Huayats or the Dididat, the other nations in that territory, in that uh, TFL, the uh, Tree Farm License yeah. T, uh, 46. So uh, we're working with the nations, at, not just on the island, Mike, but uh, across the province uh, to implement our old growth report that we asked for and that was lauded, I recall, by many of the people who have been arrested as a, as a groundbreaking report. But you can't just... Uh, receive the report and then change the world. You have to do the work. And that's what we've been engaged in for the past number of months. And it's going to take uh, months more. We also, uh, as you know, there's two forest industries in BC. There's the interior and there's the coast. And so we uh, put out an intentions paper this week to transform the interior as well. We live in a new world. Climate change, pine beetles, fires have changed the landscape and not just BC, it, around the world. And we need to imagine our industries in a new light. And that also takes work. Speaking of BC Premier John Horgan, British Columbia was the first province in Canada to call for the U.S. border to be shut down during the pandemic. What about reopening that border? We've seen business groups in the last week in British Columbia call for a plan to reopen that U.S. border, so pivotal to our tourism economy. People have got family down there. They own property south of the border. When, when do you want to see that border reopen? Let it safe to do so. And I know your listeners and the industry are frustrated by that. But when we released our restart plan, uh, I, what I heard at that time from businesses is, thank goodness, there's light at the end of this uh, COVID tunnel. Uh, we have a plan. We have a roadmap. It's based on data. It's based on dates. Uh, and so I've been engaging with officials, uh, with the federal government. So they're responsible for borders. I'm in regular contact with Governor Jay Inslee, just to the south of us. And I've got a call set up next week. Uh, it was canceled for a couple of good reasons with uh, Senator Murkowski, Murkowski from mm. uh, Alaska. So uh, we want to make sure that our neighbors understand 
why British Columbians are anxious about the borders. We want to make sure that vaccination programs in other jurisdictions are as, as robust as they are here. Uh, so I have a dual responsibility to, to listen to people who say, let's not invite the world back until it's safe to do so. And, and then, of course, those industries, as you rightly say, who depend on more people coming here. Uh, we're trying to find well, that balance every day. And the prime minister and the premiers are, have been working on this for some time now. And uh, I think by the uh, as we get into July or the first uh, latter part of June, the first part of July, we'll have a, a plan that's clear well, and uh, presentable for the industry and for the people around the world. Well, what what is the signal, though, that you're looking for? I mean, when you look south of the border and you talk to your counterpart, the Washington state governor there, it seems like their vaccination rate is kind of lagging uh, at, at yeah. this po- at this point. Like, I think they're at what, like 60 percent or something like wh- what percentage of vaccinations do you want to see in, in Washington state before you'd be comfortable opening the border again? Well, those are the those are the very discussions we're having with uh, federal officials, Mike, and with other provinces. And, and each province has a different perspective on this as well. I think it's safe to say. Uh, but uh, what's your perspective? Well, my perspective is I'd like to see them around 70, 75 percent. We're hoping we're shooting for 85. Uh, Dr. Henry's shooting for 100 percent here in B.C. And uh, they've got new innovative ideas. I hear uh, President Biden and uh, Governor Inslee talk and others around the U.S. talking about lotteries, talking about incentives to get that last push to get the, up another 10 or 15 percent. Uh, but those are those are details that we're dealing with public health on. Uh, again, uh, you know full well, Mike, uh, people do not want to say welcome until it's safe for British Columbia to say welcome. And, and that's what I have to be guided by. Okay, we got some disappointing job numbers that have just come out this morning from Statistics yeah. Canada showing that B.C. lost uh, 1,900 jobs in the last month. Are you concerned there? Well, we, that's uh, probably a result of the circuit breaker. Uh, we, we gained more full-time jobs. Uh, we lost uh, on the net-net, as they say. We lost uh, jobs, but we're still... Uh, Quebec and, uh, and B.C. are leading the country in uh, job uh, returns after the pandemic. Uh, we, we had the circuit breaker in place until the 25th of, Mar- of May, so we didn't have a lot of days to build back those jobs. I'm confident that June's going to be a positive month. What I'm hearing now, Mike, uh, from uh, employers through our various uh, tables that we consult with is they're struggling to find workers to keep open and to expand. So we're, we're getting back, I think, to the place we were just uh, before the pandemic hit, where businesses were saying, I'd like to expand, but there are not enough people to fill the, uh, fill the vacancies. That's, that's a challenge for the whole country, but it's a particular challenge here in B.C. Let me, let me ask you, lastly, about the, uh, the PNE. The, your government's spending $6 billion bucks on pandemic relief, but you got the PNE, who's an iconic summer institution here in the province, uh, still asking for uh, more assistance. How come they're not getting more, more funding? Well, they are getting a significant amount of funding, and they have... Not uh, as much as they need. Well, the the city of Vancouver is responsible for the P&E, and uh, I I would like to see what the plan is in Vancouver, uh, rather than just turning to Victoria and saying, how do we solve these problems? And I I know how uh, iconic the P&E and Playland is to uh, not just the Lower Mainland, but the whole province. Uh, The the agricultural components particularly are are really a concern to me. We want to make sure that the the notion of the land and animals and food and all of the things that go with not just not just mini donuts, but all of the things that you can learn as, as a youth, as a child uh, going through the P&E. We want to make sure those programs continue. And there are ways to do that without just dropping a block of money on the table. I know that the board and, and the city of Vancouver are working with us on that. 
and I'm confident that we'll get the PNE and Playland back on track. I just don't think it's going to be happening in any meaningful way uh, this year. Uh, but uh, there will be elements coming back for sure in August. Premier, I'm grateful for your time today. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Okay, Mike, take care. Have a good weekend. All right, welcome back to the show. Should Canada provide incentives for people to get the COVID vaccine? That's what they're doing in the United States, where they're giving away lottery tickets, baseball tickets, and, of course, free beer. Have a listen to this ad here now from Anheuser-Busch, the biggest brewery in America. It's called the Let's Grab a Beer campaign. Have a listen. Let's get ready for a summer like no other. Let's look forward to seeing friends and family again. Let's get excited to head back to the bars. Let's get ready for the greatest time in history to grab a beer. When we hit the White House's goal of 70% partially vaccinated, beer's on us. Let's grab a beer, America. All right, sounds good to me. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Ray Dionandin. He is an epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Dionandin, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, what do you think of this idea of giving people incentives to get the vaccine? Do you think do you like it? I don't in general, but it may be unavoidable. And here's why I don't like it. It depends on the kind of incentive you're giving and uh, and the timeline for it. So Let's say I'm offering you cold, hard cash, yeah. you know, uh, I, and you're otherwise very hesitant around this vaccine. I haven't bought, I haven't won over your heart or mind. I haven't convinced you that the vaccine is good. I've just bought your participation for the afternoon. So ultimately, it doesn't solve the underlying science hesitancy problem. It just buys my way out of the issue for the day. And I got to do it again if I need a booster. You know? and the other part of it, too, is for those people who voluntarily rolled up their sleeves and got, uh, got the vaccine, they may feel cheated. Like, hey, how come these guys get incentives and I didn't? I did, I did it voluntarily. You may end up um, creating a deeper problem where in the future, if you roll out a vaccine, people will say, let's wait and see if there are going to be incentives before we line up and get these shots. Okay, it's interesting. However, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, however, having said that, we do do similar things. Like if you're going to give blood, you, you get a cookie and a glass of juice afterwards. And you say <laughs> ostensibly is to, is to reconstitute your blood sugars. But when I was younger, I gave blood just for the cookie. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, it's interesting to see what they're doing in the United States where they seem very enthusiastic about this idea of offering incentives. And it's coming right from the very top. So let me play this clip here for you of U.S. President Joe Biden here talking about vaccine incentives in America. The NBA, the NHL, NASCAR, NASCAR tracks, they're offering vaccines outside playoff games and in races. Major League Baseball will be offering free tickets to people who get vaccinated at the ballpark. And to top it off, Anheuser-Busch announced that beer is on them on July the 4th. That's right. Get a shot and have a beer. Free beer for everyone 21 years or over to celebrate the independence from the virus. Okay, free beer for everyone. Yeah, they're really laying it on thick down there for the incentives. Do you think maybe there's more vaccine hesitancy in America, Dr. Diodandon, than there is in Canada? Is Maybe that's why they're doing it more down there than we are here? I think most definitely there's more hesitancy there, but we have to distinguish types of hesitancy. There are the hardcore anti-vaxxers for whom this is never going to work. They're kind of a religion and you don't, you know, combat religiosity with uh, evidence or with strategies like this. Then there are those who are skeptical about the science. And for those people, 
you really want to approach them, you know, uh, with some care and explain the science carefully. And then there are the rest for whom maybe there's some apathy or maybe it's too difficult to access the vaccine. For that latter category, I think this works well. You know, you're sitting in a ball game and they'll offer you the vaccine right there where you're sitting. Hey, that solves the problem of access. And if you sweeten the deal with a free beer, that's okay. So as far as ethical transgressions go, that doesn't bother me that much. It gets more problematic if you're offering cold, hard cash, especially if someone is vaccine hesitant for deeply seated uh, reasons, but they're poor. And suddenly you're exploiting their poverty to get what you want out of their bodies. And that's not very good. But beer is fine. You know, (laughs) a a free ball game, that's fine, too. Okay, how important is it to reach those minimum vaccine levels to we're, we're trying to achieve herd immunity, I guess, right? Is that the goal? That is the goal, right. Yeah. And so what the United States is experiencing is now they've probably got more supply than demand. We have more demand than supply. And so they're scratching up against that hard wall where they got to get more doses into that last bunch of people to get this disease fully under control. So they're pulling out all the stops. I understand it's probably not. It's probably what we're going to have to do to some extent. But the other incentive that we have to offer is, hey, if you get vaccinated, you have access to all of society. Kind of like, you know, what the Leafs game did recently where uh, people with two doses got to attend the game in person. Right. So vaccination in and of itself should be the incentive. But for some people, that's not going to be enough. Okay, it's interesting that south of the border, they're not only doing the incentives to try and convince people to get the vaccine, but they're also trying to remove barriers to people getting the shot, making it easier for people to access the vaccine. Let me play another uh, clip here for you from U.S. President Joe Biden, and this is a little longer clip, and he's going to outline some of the ways they're trying to make it easier for people to get vaccinated. Here he is. Starting next week, many vaccination sites will be offering extended hours during the month of June, including pharmacies that will be open 24 hours every Friday night. For 24 hours, they'll be open this month. And if you're too busy at work or school, you can get vaccinated around the clock on any Friday, any Friday. For parents who haven't been able to get the shot because they didn't have the child care, starting today, kinder care, learning care group, the Bright Horizons, alongside with hundreds of YMCA locations, we're going to offer free drop-in child care while the parents are getting vaccinated. In addition, Uber and Lyft are both offering free rides to and from vaccination sites, vaccination centers. It's easier than ever to get vaccinated. Okay, really interesting, I thought, there. U.S. President Joe Biden outlining some of the ways that they're trying to make it easier for people to get the COVID shot. So 24-hour clinics on Fridays, free child care free rides to the clinic from Uber and Lyft. Dr. Diodana, what do you think of that? I love it. That's exactly what we have to do. That's the way to do it. Now, I love the fact that it's on Fridays, so we've got the weekend to recover. The thing that's missing there is for some people, they get such bad side effects lasting one or two days that they can't go to work or care for their kids. So the additional childcare would be nice if it was offered for a couple of days after your shot or if your employer was encouraged to pay you while you're at home recovering. But that's the, the last couple of things that have to be solved. This clearly addresses the lowest hanging fruit, which is just remove the barriers for me to get the vaccine and I will be there willingly. Right? Those people definitely need to be far the line to be served. And then for the remainder ones who need some, something else to sweeten the deal, like free beer, that's always in the cards too. Right. What's the minimum vaccination rate 
that Canada should try to achieve, do you think? It's tough to say. Um, the herd immunity threshold is computed relative to this thing called R. Everyone knows what R is now. But we don't really know what the base R is for this disease. And we won't know, we'll know what herd immunity is until we actually get it and surpass it. We thought it would be around 70% a year ago. Yeah. But with these new variants being hypertransmissible, it's probably over 85%. So we'll need over 85% of the population to be immune. That's either through getting the disease and, and recovering or from getting vaccinated. Okay, 85%. No, it is interesting to hear different numbers. Like I've heard, I've heard some of the numbers you just said, 70%, 75, 85. You know, some people think we should shoot even higher than that. Like, okay, so if we look at, if we look at like 85%, though, do you think Canada is on track to achieve that? Yes, we are. Um, So surveys suggest that 90% of people are willing to get the vaccines. Now, keep in mind, if you look at just adults, the proportion of the population that are over 18 is like 80%. So we're going to have to put some shots into teenagers and kids to get us over that hump. But you know what? Um, if you don't reach 80 or 85%, we have other options. We can just maintain some mitigation strategies, like having limits on gatherings and things like that, until the disease really comes down. So there are ways to artificially lower the herd immunity threshold. Thanks a lot for coming on with your thoughts and your expertise on this today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the deadliest day on Mount Everest now, 2015. That was the year a 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck the mountain. It was the largest earthquake in Nepal in 81 years. It killed nearly 9,000 people in that country. On Mount Everest itself, well, it was the deadliest day in the mountain's history 18 people lost their lives on Mount Everest that day. What a great guest I have for you now, Jim Davidson. Jim is a New York Times bestselling author and a world-class climber. He was on Mount Everest on the day the earthquake hit. I highly recommend his incredible book on the experience, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. Jim Davidson, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Great to be with you. It's it's awesome to talk to you. How long have you been climbing, and uh, had you dreamed about climbing Mount Everest for a long time before you went there? Yes, at this point, I've been a climber about 39 years, and my dream of going to Everest first started when I was just a child looking at uh, books and National Geographic magazines, and I saw this black-and-white photograph of Mount Everest, and I dreamed someday maybe I'd get to go there, but uh, I was not much of an athlete and certainly not a climber, so I knew I had a long, long path to get there. Okay, well, you got there, and let's go back to April 25th, 2015, Jim, the day that the earthquake hit the mountain. Where were you on the mountain that day when the earthquake struck? I was with my teammates up at Camp 1, which is just about 6,000 meters. We had moved up from base camp about 800 meters below us, and we were resting in our tents because we climb at nighttime across the glacier because it's very dangerous during the heat of the day. So we climbed at night, we were resting, at, and at 11.56 in the morning, all of a sudden we heard an avalanche come off one slope toward us, coming down almost 1,000 meters. That didn't scare us that much, though, because that happens on Everest every day. But then a second avalanche started coming down almost 2,000 vertical meters on the other side of us, and then our tent lifted into the air when the first waves of the earthquake rippled through the glacier, and that's when I knew we were in an earthquake. Oh, my God. Okay, base one... Our camp one, I believe that, isn't that the ice field? The ice field? Yes, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's on the Kumbu Glacier, just above the Kumbu Icefall. 
Yeah, the ice fall. Oh, man, that's like one of the most dangerous parts of the mountain, isn't it, with all those crevasses and stuff? You are correct. Yeah, going yeah. through the Kumbo ice fall, it's like climbing through a three-dimensional pile of loose Jenga blocks, and they're all sliding downhill and falling on each other. And we just emerged out of that and camped on a flat spot. But even the flat spot is dangerous because you're surrounded by these slopes that are 1,000 to 2,000 meter high, and they avalanche on us. And that's what happened when the earthquake shook the, the snow loose and came towards our tent. Oh, man, what a place to be when the, when the earthquake hit. So when it hit, did, did you become, like at first you say you thought, okay, an avalanche is not unusual on the mountain. When did you become aware, like, okay, this is, a, this is an earthquake here? Yeah, when the tent shot up in the air the first moment, I was confused, huh. and then it went down, and then it went back up again as the next wave came through. And I'm a geologist by training. I spent 20 years working as a geologist, and that's when it all kind of glued together. Two avalanches, the ground's going up and down, got to be an earthquake. So I yelled to my tent, my tent mate, I said, get out of the tent quick. We didn't want to be in the tent when the avalanches came towards us. But when we went outside, all we could see was clouds. We didn't know where the avalanches were coming from. So we couldn't run because we didn't know which way to run. We were just trapped there listening to those avalanches pour towards us as the ground kept shaking beneath our feet. Oh, man. What was going through your mind then? I was pretty sure we were all going to be dead. I'd been a climber for 33 years at that point. I'd seen avalanches. I'd been in some rescue situations. And I thought, man, we are trapped with these avalanches on both sides. The glacier beneath our feet could collapse in. I thought for sure we'd all be dead in the next minute. But uh, what happened was the wind started blowing sideways, and it wasn't the weather it was the avalanches bulldozing the air sideways as they approached our tent. So then we had to dive back into the tent because we couldn't breathe because there was so much ice dust in the air. And this went on with the ground shaking and the wind blowing for about five minutes. And when it stopped, nobody in our camp got hurt. Nobody got killed. We were lucky to be alive and very thankful. But that's when we found out there was an even bigger disaster down in base camp below us. Okay. What elevation are you at at that point on the mountain? At Camp 1, we're just about 6,000 meters. 6,000 meters. Okay, so at that point, what do, you, what do you do? I guess you start trying to head back down. I mean, what happened next? Well, we wanted to head down for sure because when we got on the radio, we wanted to get out of harm's way where we were, but also when we got on the radio and called base camp, we found out they had had an avalanche, but besides just wind and powder snow, their avalanche contained ice blocks and rocks, lots and lots of rocks that blew through base camp like a big tsunami of debris. Sadly, it took out about 100 tents, wounded 70 people, and killed 18 in an instant. And that's what made it the deadliest day ever on Everest. And we wanted to get down there to try and help out the Everest community, but we couldn't because our ropes and ladder system through that dangerous Kumbo icefall had been wiped out by yet another avalanche. So we were stuck at Camp 1 while the disaster was unfolding in base camp. Oh, my goodness. How did you get out of there? Well, we were pinned down for about almost two days. The, the first day, they used some helicopters to move the wounded from base camp to some remote medical outpost. And then the next day, there was a small window of clear weather. So they were able to use the helicopters, come up and carry us all down from Camp 1, slowly evacuated about 180 of us. So finally, after two days of being trapped at Camp 1, we are back in base camp, but immediately got involved with digging through rock and avalanche debris, trying to recover medical equipment and help recover the bodies and course we knew that climbing wasn't important anymore we were just trying to help out the nepali community where we were at oh man talk about a traumatic event and a a terrible scene when you got back to base camp there and the devastation and the loss of life can you put that into words i mean what was that like yeah it it is very traumatic traumatic for everybody that went through it even more traumatic for the people in nepal that had thousands of their citizens pass away 
And slowly as the news trickled into us, we began to realize this was a truly a national and even an international disaster for Nepal and the neighboring countries. So all we tried to do is just help out where we could with recovering the bodies and helping disassemble some houses. And you, you just feel so bad. A small party is happy to be alive, but you're also traumatized by seeing the loss around you. So when I got home, I got involved, as many climbers did, to do some fundraising to raise money for Nepal's rebuilding because, you know, it was traumatic for their country and tough on their economy as well. All right, welcome back to my conversation with Jim Davidson, the New York Times bestselling writer, world-class climber. Highly recommend his new book, The Deadliest Day on Mount Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. Jim was on Mount Everest back in 2015 when a 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck the mountain. He survived that day. Many other people lost their lives. Okay, Jim, when you got back uh, stateside there and you were able to think about what had happened, what, what was that like for you? I mean, was, that's an obviously a traumatic experience to go through. How was that for you? Yeah, it was difficult. I'd seen a lot of tragedy over there and knew how bad things were in Nepal. So I, I got back to the States uh, about six weeks earlier than I intended. So uh, what I did was I kind of threw myself into fundraising to doing a lot of public speaking and auctions and things like that to raise money for Nepal's rebuilding. And that helped for a while. But then, of course, I was asking myself, uh, you know, I know Nepal is dependent upon tourism. Should I go back and spend my dollars as a tourist, as a climber again? Uh, I was scared to because I had survived the quake the first time and I didn't want to go through that a second time. So I was a geologist and I looked into whether the quake would happen again. Maybe all their stress is relieved, I thought. And unfortunately, I found out that the way the quake tore the plates, there was actually more stress in the tectonic plates now. So someday there's going to be another earthquake that's even bigger, but we don't know when. So I was hesitant to go back. But I eventually decided I still wanted to try and climb Everest. I wanted to help keep my Sherpa friends employed. So I trained really hard and went back to Everest in 2017. Okay, so just two two years later, you were back on the mountain. Did you have any hesitancy there at all? I mean, you mentioned earlier that climbing Mount Everest was a dream of yours since you were a kid. But to go through such a traumatic experience like that, did it ever occur to you to maybe stop, maybe not go back to the mountain? It did. I thought about it for months and months. In fact, I waited a whole year through 2016 to make sure that Nepal was ready to have guests back, which they were, and that the mountain was safe, which it was. And still I was hesitant because I didn't want to go through that again. Uh, But I've been a climber for a long time, and I found, as I shared in the book, that by picking these big challenges, you refine yourself into a better version of you. You have to do more, and you have to become more than you ever were before. So by picking those big challenges, I feel like it improves me as a person. So I knew that Walking away from the goal would have its ramifications, so I decided that the risk geologically was probably small that it would happen again, and I still wanted to try and learn what the uh, mountain could teach me, so that's why I trained and went back. Okay, so let's talk about your return trip to the mountain gym back in 2017. You returned to Mount Everest to complete your dream of climbing the mountain. What was it like to get back there? Let's say like when you got to base camp, the scene of that devastation just two years earlier, what was it like to return there? Yeah, you picked the right moment, Mike. When I got to base camp and looked around, it's almost like I could see the movie playing in my head of what happened there two years ago, and it certainly was unsettling. Uh, That first night in base camp, we had a very minor avalanche that was miles away, no risks to us at all, but it kind of scared me, and I jumped with a big startle, and the next morning I spoke with one of our senior Sherpas that had been climbing over there for decades, and he heard it too, and we compared notes, and he said, that was very scary, and I said, yeah. So I know I wasn't the only one with the previous earthquake and the avalanche is still on my mind. 
But like I've learned from previous climbs, you have to sort of put the risk aside. You recognize it. You kind of compartmentalize it and then still set out to do what you're trying to do. Okay, so let's talk about your, your climb on Everest in 2017, Jim. Um, can you take us through that? Like, what are some of the toughest stretches there getting up the mountain? Yeah, some of the toughest things is the low oxygen level. You know, you, you go very fit, ready to do the physical work, but the low oxygen level is just brutal on your body. And by the time you get to 6,000 meters, there's way less than half the amount of oxygen that there is at sea level. And by the time you reach the summit at 8,848 meters, it's something like 70% less oxygen. So the low oxygen is difficult. You spend literally six or seven weeks getting your body ready to make the summit push. So you're on the mountain 55, 60 days before you get to the summit. And all of that kind of wears you out. So it's tough to keep your morale up and still stay focused on the goal. Okay, I've seen a lot of movies uh, of Mount Everest, and I'm fascinated by it. And you mentioned earlier that very treacherous part of the mountain, the Kumbu Icefall, that you, you crossed during your first attempt when the earthquake hit. Like, that's the part where you're going across on ladders and stuff, right? Yes, the ladders are, in this case, horizontal. We use them as temporary bridges. So we walk across on the rungs, and you can see the drop between the rungs that's literally 40 or 50 meters deep inside the glacier. Oh, my God. What's going through your mind when you do that? Well, I grew up working for my dad's painting company, and as I shared my book, The Next Everest, the things I learned working for my dad's painting company served me very well in in climbing, uh, not only the physical crossing of the ladder, but the ability to focus on the solution. So my my dad's words were running through my head, focus on the climb, not the drop. So you, in this case, you focus on the climbing rungs going across, don't focus on the air around you. It's, it's, recognizes that the danger is there, but focus on the solution, not yeah. the potential problem. It sounds like it's a physical thing as well as a mental thing as well. It sounds, yeah, it sounds absolutely. Like, Sometimes it sounds the like mental sure. is far bigger than the physical. Yeah. Okay, so when did you, you made it to the top? I know, so you successfully summited Everest there in 2017. What was the date that you made it to the summit? In Nepal, it was May 22nd of 2017, wow. and we managed to reach the summit just before sunrise because we climb all during the night when it's cold and hopefully the glacier is most solid. And we got to the summit just before sunrise. And after 35 years of being a climber, finally got that magical moment of seeing the sunrise. And I'll tell you, there, there was no great feelings of conquest or conquering. I, I find that concept even silly. Instead, it was very, very humbling to think there's so many reasons I might have given up along the way. A lot of people helped me. So I felt very fortunate and very humble to be there on top finally after all those decades of work. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, a lot of people have seen pictures, Jim, of the the traffic jams and the backup and long lines of climbers trying to make that final push to the summit. And people would think like, it's, it just seems insane. There's so many people up there all getting bottled up, trying to meet, reach the summit. Was it, was it like that for you back in 2017? Was there a line up there? Yeah, I, I know the photo you're talking about. It is, it is a terrible photo. It was a real photograph from 2019. And that photo was kind of the worst hour of the worst day ever when it was most crowded because the weather was very bad in 2019. So that caused everybody to go for the summit at the same time. It's kind of like if you think about your most favorite beach, uh, if they only opened it one day out of the whole summer and everybody went on the same day, eh, it'd be pretty crowded on the way out to the beach. It doesn't make the beach a terrible place, and it's not crowded like that all the time, but on that one crowded day, it's pretty crowded. So fortunately, we did not see that in 2017. We probably lost 10 minutes here and 15 minutes there with minor crowding, but it was nothing like that photo because that photo is sort of the worst incident ever. 
Do you think that, we just got a minute and a half left here, but do you think that there's been criticism of the management of the mountain? I mean, that became kind of a viral photo of the lineup of, of climbers trying to get to the summit. There's been reports of, like, garbage piling up on the mountain. What do you think of those reports and the way that the, the, the mountain is managed there? Yeah, I've heard those claims, too. And what I put in the book the next day is, as an environmental geologist, I collected all the data about trash management on the mountain. Uh, there, there has been big problems in decades past. Those problems are mostly gone now. There have been th- uh, 35 expeditions that made cleanup part of it, and there's fees and fines if you don't clean up your trash. And most climbers are green people. They want to keep the environment clean. So there's still some old problems that need cleaning up in a few camps, but the mountain is not covered with trash, nor is the mountain covered in human waste. I actually put some calculations in my book, The Next Everest, showing that there are some small problems that we still need to manage, but it's nothing like the media puts forth sometimes. Okay, very interesting. Thanks for coming on today to share this uh, incredible series of experiences you've had there. And I really appreciate your time today, and good luck with the book, and thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. All right, let's talk about the latest corporate cyber attacks now. Last month, the Colonial Pipeline hit with a ransomware attack. The company operates a pipeline providing nearly half the fuel supply on the east coast of the United States. The hackers demanded a $4 million ransom. The company paid up. Also, another massive ransomware attack on the meat processing giant JBS. It's the biggest meatpacking company in the world. And that attack forced it to halt its U.S. US operations while it scrambled to restore its computer systems. The attack, like a lot of other recent attacks, believed to have originated in Russia. Let's discuss now with my guest, Claudiu Popa. Claudiu is one of Canada's top cybersecurity experts, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Claudiu, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, these sound like massive attacks here. These are giant companies operating giant systems. Where would you place this on sort of the scale and severity of some of the recent attacks? These sound huge. It's a sign of the times. Um, uh, The criminal element has been fine-tuning their approaches over the past couple of years. They've systematically made sure that their approaches are now working and they scale so it's a similar amount of effort to attack small companies as it is to attack large ones and of course they have deeper pockets at the top end so we're going to be looking at multi-million dollar ransoms for the foreseeable future okay do they deliberately target big companies like this that are part of big systems in in america like if you look at jbs biggest meatpacking company in the world, 20% of the beef supply in the United States. I mean, talk about a target to go after or this pipeline company so integral to fuel distribution on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Do they become particularly attractive targets? Yes, the the, the cyber extortion business model works this way. It works because there's urgency, and when you cripple an entire supply chain, when you bring an entire sector or an industry to a standstill, you know that people will be motivated to pay up fast and to not initiate an investigation right away. They'll send the money, they'll go through insurance or whatever they have to do in order to clear up this uh, this clogging that is that's blocking uh, potentially the entire economy from from functioning. So it's all about urgency. And of course, it's all about how much money is being lost per second by uh, associated businesses. 
Okay, when these companies get hit like this, do they make a business decision on whether to pay these hackers? Like, it's interesting to me that this Colonial Pipeline company, you know, de- they get face a demand for millions of dollars in ransom, and they paid it, right? They did. Uh, last month, uh, one of the largest insurance companies in the U.S., uh, CNA, paid a ransom of $40 million U.S., wow. obviously, uh, in order to regain control of their systems and potentially regain control of their data. So these are decisions that are made uh, practically instantly because every hour that passes is more money lost and reputational damage, not to mention liability as well. Okay, who is pulling this off? Who are these cyber gangs? We're talking about organized cybercrime. Uh, it's it's no longer enough to to go after people and and you know smash their kneecaps. It's it's important to find the right hackers to make sure that they're distributed across political boundaries. In most cases, these guys are in multiple countries, and they come together. They uh, they of course are different people at different levels. You've got those who build the software, those who create the networks, the the uh, what I call the bottom feeders that essentially collect spam lists and they initially email them out to companies in the hope that someone will click on an infected attachment. And, of course, uh, you have the negotiators. And so there's, there's a, a vast number of people who find it fairly easy to enter the cybercrime uh, industry because they see it as easy money and also because they see themselves as playing just a small part in a big enterprise. And perhaps that's how they sleep at night because they don't feel that they have a large part to play. They get a, a few bucks for, for facilitating maybe a couple of emails sent. They don't feel guilt the way that uh, someone who would organize the entire enterprise would. Well, that's incredible. Speaking to Claudio Popa, one of Canada's top cybersecurity experts, I find it fascinating that these cyber criminal organizations seem very brazen in claiming responsibility for these attacks like i was reading about a a gang called dark side and another one called the uh, the hacker collective is it revel or revel group that's right revel Revel. um we're we're talking about people who sometimes don't take responsibility for things we saw last month before the dark side group uh fell apart uh, that essentially they claimed that they had bitten off more than they could chew, that this was not their intention to cripple the pipeline, to cripple the oil supply. They indicated that they didn't have access to the money and that they would be more careful who it is that they allow into their organization. So it shows you that this is a distributed approach to cyber crime. It's not just, you know, a guy in a basement anymore. We're yeah. talking about people who depend on a number of others to get the work done. And if they're lucky enough to have some money trickle into their account, well, that's a successful uh, attack. What we saw here this week with the meat industry is a smooth operation. It worked well, and it served to telegraph to other groups and, of course, any government that might be interested in hiring them that these mercenaries are available and they know what they're doing. Yeah, okay, you anticipated something I was just thinking about. Like, I wonder if some of these groups, I mean, it's not just bravado online, it's like maybe advertising. Because like you said, are these, are these guys like guns for hire? 
they can be hired by hostile governments? Oh, that's right. Uh, every yeah. attack is promote uh, is promotional. It's a business card. It's a claim to fame that they that they leave behind, and they're quite proud of it. Yeah, and I see uh, the United States pointing the finger at Russia over this. Is that is that where these attacks are originating? In some cases, they do. Um, it's again. Uh, uh, attribution, which is to say pinning the blame on a particular party or country or or group of individuals is the hardest thing to do in our space, in in the industry that, that I find myself in, information security. And so to attribute something to a particular country is is an odd thing to do, considering that you might have some people in Belarus and some other people in Tajikistan, and they're part of a, a core group of individuals who, you know, happen to have a beach resort in, in Russia. Um, it's difficult to say, but in some cases, you know, pinning the blame also has political intentions and, and overtones to apply pressure in some way on uh on a, on a government you might not be the greatest of friends right. with. So I, I don't I don't attribute that much weight to, you know, blaming a, a country or perhaps even a regime for something like this, especially as in this particular case, it seems to be more of a, a criminal uh, attack rather than right. government activity. And are these cases hard to crack? Like I see the FBI investigating some of these attacks. Are, are they difficult to solve and, and find the people who did it? In some cases, they're almost impossible, like the, the attack on, you know, um, Iranian uh, uh, nuclear centrifuges, for example, especially since it was funded by the U.S. <laughs> um, but in uh, in some situations, like the dark side uh, group or, or other groups, well, some of these guys have 1-800 numbers to provide support to some of the <laughs> cyber criminals who want to join in on their gang. So you would imagine that it's fairly easy to pose as someone interested in participating in this type of crime and working your way up. Um, there are sophisticated methods to carry out these these investigations, but it's all about correlating the information. And the hard part is the collaborative aspect of, of law enforcement. You do need to collaborate across boundaries. And in many cases, you want to want to, you, you don't want to just just pounce on these guys right away. You want to watch them over a period of weeks or months in order to figure out who their acolytes are, because there's always there's always more to right. to this. They have they're part of large networks, and you want to grab as many of them as possible. Okay, it's fascinating stuff. I really appreciate your time today and your expertise in coming on to talk about it. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. It's my oh. pleasure.